I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 16 to 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Father, we thank you uh, for this word And we thank you, Lord, for your will. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, direct our hearts to these truths for your glory and our edification in Christ's name. Amen. Well, maybe you've heard the saying, like begets like. Uh, The idea is that certain attitudes or outcomes lead us uh, to do those same things again. They create the same attitudes and the same outcomes. It's a sub-law of cause and effect. The Apostle Paul put it this way, we reap what we sow. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. That's Galatians chapter 6. Like begets like. And we'll come back to that, but I want you to notice that that passage there that I quoted from Paul in Galatians, he begins the same way as James. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, James says in verse 16. See, when it comes to our desires, when it comes to the condition of our souls, when we think of our hearts and our relationship with God, we must not be deceived. And so that is why I'm coming back here to verses 16 to 18, and particularly verse 18, because it makes crystal clear How you and I, how we who have desires that are so easily led into sin, that are enticed by temptation, how we can have a relationship with an infinite, unchangeable, holy, good, and just God. See, that's the question of the ages. It's the most important question to answer. How do those who are trapped in this vicious process of temptation, the process we learned last week, if you remember, desire and then deception and disobedience and death, how we can break that cycle? Remember, the ultimate source of your temptation is not your circumstances, it's not others, it's not Satan, it's surely not God, it's your own desires. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, says verse 14. And that's the problem. Our desires are evil. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, says Jeremiah 17. There is no one righteous, no one who does good, no one who seeks after God, says Romans chapter 3. And so here's the issue. We need to have some type of change. We need to be changed. But Jeremiah asked this question. He asked it rhetorically. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or can the leopard his spots? And the answer is obvious. No, they can't. And so he goes on to say, neither can you do good who are accustomed to do evil, Jeremiah 13. We need to be changed from the inside out. But we can't do it ourselves. We're, we're stuck. We need to be born again. We need to be regenerated. 
But as James says, our desires only give birth to sin and death. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's what he's taught us. And so we cannot bring about our own salvation, our salvation from God and his wrath by our own desire. We will never will salvation. Uh, our, our desire, our, our willing is only good for one thing, and that's birthing sin. Like begets like. Our desires are evil, and so we're only capable of giving birth to evil. And James' teaching on our desires is actually the same as Jesus. In fact, as we go through James, you'll notice that he, he echoes Jesus' teaching often in his letters, half-brother. In this case, he's thinking of Luke chapter 6, and this is what Jesus said there. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Again, did you hear that? Like begets like. Good trees do what? They produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. It seems simple. Uh, thorn bushes do not produce figs. They produce what? Thorns. And grapes are not found on bramble bushes. They are found on grapevines. And, and then so he makes the comparison. Good treasure is not mined out of evil hearts. And, and there's the issue. We're born with evil hearts. Now, I think this is uh, the single most important biblical doctrine for us to grasp, for us to learn uh, how to be safe from our evil desire. It's one of the most foundational doctrines for sure. And see, misunderstanding this doctrine is why there's so much confusion, even in the church, on how people are saved. Or to be more theologically specific, how people are born again. And so if you can grasp this one teaching, all, all those more difficult teachings are easier to, to hold on to, like the sovereignty of salvation found in God. And that's what I'll share in verse 18. It's easier to swallow if we get this. See, James wants you to understand, he wants you to settle in your mind that you cannot do anything to contribute to being born again. Left to yourself, you will always desire sin. You will always desire evil. You will always desire self over salvation. It's not that you'll be the evilest you could possibly be, but you won't desire God. Last week I said you will always desire your comfort over the cross of Christ. And so when it comes to being born again, your will is not your friend, it's your enemy. Why? Because your will is bound by your heart's desires. I know you hear talk of we have free will, this autonomous free will. But everything that James has said just in these verses shows that that's not true. Our, our wills are in bondage to sin. Or let me, let me put it differently. It sounds like a contradiction. It's not. Your will is free. Your will is free to do that which your heart desires. 
We always do our heart's desires. A person who desires something and then doesn't do it and does the opposite, it, we, we say they're, they, they're insane. We do what we desire. Now, we may think, for example, I may think I want to desire losing weight, but I desire pie more. <laughs> it's obvious by the actions. Our wills are not neutral. Our wills are not something separate from us. That, that kind of way, uh, the good and the bad, and, and then uh, make a decision. It, our wills are, are our affections in action. A person who is stealing is because he has a heart of theft. A person who is lying is a person who has a heart of a liar. What did Jesus say? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You you often hear, especially in our day, somebody goes off and commits some heinous crime, especially if it's a young person, and we say, well, they're really good inside. Um, And that's exactly wrong. Uh, Because there's no one good. This isn't a judgment on them any more than it's a, uh, more or less than it is a judgment on myself. Uh, A person who shoots someone is because they have a heart full of murder. They may not be evil in everything and every action may not be to, to destroy somebody or kill somebody, but they had a desire for murder or they wouldn't have done it. And so our wills are not free. And so being born again is not based on your will. Or your decision. Now, this isn't an isolated teaching that is only left for those who love John Calvin. It's found everywhere in the Bible. John says this We were born again. That's important. We need to be. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. John 1 12. Apostle Paul says, It depends not on human will or exertion. Romans chapter 9. And so the Holy Spirit, through this teaching, wants you to grasp that, uh, that you can no longer do good. on You can't do good on your own, and you can only do it if the Lord changes your heart. That's what James wants you to understand. He does not want you to be deceived. Deceived by the teaching that would make anyone but God the author of those who get saved. See, only God can break the cycle of temptation in your heart. Only God is able to give birth to salvation in the soul of a person who's dead in their sins. Only God's desire matters when it comes to being born again. It's God's decision that saves. If God wills it, then you will be saved. It's not your will. It's not your decision per se. Of his own will, he brought us forth. That's what verse 18 says. Literally, the translation in the ESV, of his own will, but the NSB gets at the meaning, by the exercise of his will. The idea is that by a deliberate and specific exercise of God's will or desire, we are brought forth. We are born again. That phrase there, by his own will, is in the emphatic, emphatic position in the Greek. It appears first in the sentence. James is emphasizing it. It's by his will, his will. John MacArthur says James is reinforcing the truth that God's sovereign will, God's unfluenced will, is the source and the basis of your new life. 
It's his will. And notice something else James is doing here. He is contrasting us with God. Our desire with God's desire. The same verb is used here. Uh, for gives birth and brought forth. Man's desire gives birth to what? Sin and death. God's desire gives birth to what? To life and holiness. This is why James says in verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. Regeneration, the theological term, being born again, is a good and perfect gift coming from the same God who gave birth to creation and called all that he made good. And so God's will is the moving cause of salvation. It's his will. Like begets like. And so when God gives birth, it is a good birth. It's a life-giving birth. And so God is the one who wills our regeneration, our being born again. Now, this is the same thing the Apostle John was saying in the verse I quoted earlier. Remember, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Then he says, but on God. So what the Apostle Paul said, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But on God. It's on God. God gives us new birth. It all depends upon God. Our faith, understand this, your faith in Christ does not regenerate you. You were born again, not by faith, as it were. You were were regenerated, and because you were regenerated, you bring forth faith. Uh, Understand that. You contribute nothing to your regeneration. A dead man cannot assist in his own resurrection. You know, when Jesus went to the, the gravesite of Lazarus, he didn't sit there and wait for Lazarus to will himself alive. He called him forth. And so Lazarus came forth. He calls us forth. He regenerates us. So we exercise faith. God alone regenerates. It's theologically called monergistic regeneration. Mono meaning one. Uh, A a monergistic work is a work produced by that one person. Uh, And then there's this synergistic work that people talk about. It's, It's when you have, it's kind of working together. The question is this. Does God work alone when he regenerates? Does he work together? This was the issue that sparked the Reformation. Is regeneration a work of God alone, or is it a work that requires cooperation from the sinner and God? That was the issue. Rome, at the time of Luther, said man cooperated with God. Luther said God alone regenerates. All the Reformers said that. They taught, as I believe this Scripture teaches, man can only exercise faith Man can only be justified by faith after he's been regenerated. See, this is why when churches today that call themselves Protestant and and they teach that faith, believe and you'll be born again, believe your belief saves you is really what Roman Catholics were teaching. And they don't mean it, right? I didn't mean it anymore when I would tell people that. I didn't realize what I was saying, but that would be the truth nonetheless. James says, don't be deceived. He wants you to understand this. We do not cooperate with God to receive new life. It's a gift. It's based on his will. And once God wills to give you the good gift of life, 
once God regenerates your heart, changes you, then you will believe. You will have faith. Regeneration precedes faith. God changes you, you respond in faith. Now, we may experience it, quote, at the same time, but God had to do something in our heart. Spurgeon said it this way, faith in the living God and his son Jesus Christ is always the result of the new birth, not the cause of the new birth. It's the result. Because I've been born again, now I have faith. Faith can never exist except in those who have been born again. Now, I know you're all thinking, it's a lot of theological jargon, and I'm not quite sure where you're going. But the reason I'm emphasizing this, the reason I've repeated over and over is because, one, that's what our passage teaches. And if the passage teaches that, I have to teach what the passage teaches. But I'm also emphasizing it because it's the, it's the gospel. It's the core of our belief system. Uh, the message, this message is, uh, is the good news, and this message alone is the good news. There's no good news for sinners like you and me if God alone does not initiate salvation. It's the very heart of the Bible's message. Remember Jesus. He's with Nicodemus. Uh, I, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. If I were to ask before this service started, hey, who would like to see the kingdom of God? I'm sure most of you would say, I would. And so Jesus says, look, you can't unless you're born again. And like many of us, uh, uh, Nicodemus was confused. Uh, and so Jesus responds and says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Then he says this, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Notice what Jesus says, like begets like. Flesh gives birth to what? Flesh. The Spirit gives birth to spirit. Left in your flesh, left in your flesh, all you can give birth to is flesh. You cannot do anything to give birth to spiritual life. Uh, but the Holy Spirit can. And the Holy Spirit gives birth to spirit. And like the wind, the Holy Spirit does whatever he pleases. He, he, nothing constrains the Holy Spirit. Even your evil heart is unable to resist the regenerating work and power of the Holy Spirit. And so God sovereignly saves the, the, the Holy Spirit of God has sovereignly moves where he wills and he gives new birth to those whom he has ordained to salvation, who he chooses to save. And so only that message of a, a, a monergistic regeneration, God alone, it, it, that's what truly humbles us. And, and, and it's the only message that exalts God. And the reason why is because you are saved according to God's plan and according to his will. It's by his power and for his purpose. You contribute nothing. And so whenever you reflect upon your salvation, your complete salvation, but being, whenever the fact that you've been born again, the fact that you believe, the fact that you've been justified, the fact that you've been forgiven by Christ, the fact that you've been adopted into God's family, what should come about is you should be humbled. 
You should be brought low, knowing you deserve God's wrath, you deserve his judgment, but you receive his love and you receive his mercy. Think about it. Why do you think you believed before the other person who didn't? Why do you believe while another person doesn't? It's because you're a little less dead in your sins? Is it because you're just a lot smarter than them? Is it because, well, you're a better person than them? None of those are true. Uh, The answer is no. Scripture teaches that the only reason one person believes and is saved and another is not is because God willed it to be that way. That's the truth. And so if you're a believer here today, you're a believer because God, before eternity passed, chose you to believe. And it should cause you to humble yourself. And it should cause you to exalt God. You should bow before him in recognition that you did not deserve his favor. You did not earn it. It was for his good pleasure and his good pleasure only that you were born again and saved. That's the reality. And that's what James is teaching here. Now, what about the unsaved? After hearing that, Right? I mean, why even bother trying? I mean, you just said that, that I can't resist his will. It's up to him. My will is no good in saving you. I might as well be complacent. If I can't save myself and God must save me, I'll just sit back. Why, why bother? Uh, and the answer is, well, no, that's not the proper response. What's amazing about all this is that Paul taught what I just taught here from the Scripture And he anticipated that people would say that. And it only makes sense that they would say that if he was teaching that God was completely sovereign over salvation. And he, after he taught that in Romans 9, he says, look, I know what you're going to say. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? I mean, isn't that what you were possibly thinking? If God's the one that decides, I will this person be saved and not that person, and, and that's the only way he can be saved, well, how can he still find fault with people? Who can resist his will? Paul says, okay, I know you're thinking that. Here's my response. You're probably right. I'm getting a little too hard on you. I probably should back down a little. He doesn't say that. Here's his response to the person who's struggling with this teaching. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, Romans 9, 19 to 23. See, God will be glorified in salvation. And the vessels of wrath demonstrate the riches of his glory. The only question left to answer is, are you a vessel of mercy or are you a vessel of wrath? That's what you need to know. My suggestion is, is not argue with God over his sovereign plan. You're never going to win that. He's sovereign. Rather, what you do is throw yourself on his mercy. 
In the name of Jesus, you repent of your rebellion against God, and you beg him to grant you repentance. And see, if you humble yourself before the Lord, James will tell us this, he will exalt you, James 4.10. And so now, right now is the time for salvation. Now is the time for you to humble yourself, to recognize that you cannot save yourself and then cling to the cross of Christ for salvation. And if you do that, then you know that you're a vessel of mercy. That's how you know. If you do that, then you know that you've been born again by the Spirit of God. Everyone God regenerates, everyone God gives the Spirit, everyone who gives new life to, they do believe and are justified. And so that's the main lesson of this passage. There's two more, and I'm not going to be as long in these. We know who does it, God, and now we're told how it's done, and then we're told why it's done. We know God does it. We know he sends us his Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes into your life, giving you a completely new nature, which gives you new desires. He regenerates your dead soul and gives you life, and those new desires then you believe. So how is it done? Verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. God ordains the means as well as the ends. He not only sovereignly wills who will be born again, he also ordains that it will come about from the word of truth, through the preaching of the gospel. Do you understand? The Spirit of God doesn't work apart from the word of God. The Spirit of God doesn't work apart from the Word of God. God first wills our salvation and achieves it through the gospel message. This is what Peter said. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. See, it's through the preaching of the Word, the preaching of Christ crucified, through the proclamation that Christ lived the perfect life on your behalf, for the proclamation that He died on the cross for the sins of His people, that He rose again for our justification that we may have life. It's through the preaching of that message, through the preaching of the gospel, that God draws men and women to Himself. He's sovereign. He can't save. He could save apart from that, but he's ordained to do it this way. When the Holy Spirit comes with power and opens the eyes of the blind, when the Holy Spirit comes with power and unstops the ears of the deaf, it is that message of Christ crucified and risen again that enables someone to believe. And so, Scripture is the instrument that God uses to bring about the new birth. We not be able to see the Spirit at work, like the wind. That's what we heard. We don't see him. We only see his effects. And the effects here are our believing. And so we do know that he only works in concert with the gospel. And so what do we do? We must proclaim it. We must shout it from the rooftop. We must be heralds of that glorious good news. You ever think about it? It was through the spoken word that God brought forth the universe, and it's through the spoken word that God brings forth new life and new birth. That's why Paul said when it came to the preaching, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed, and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard, and how are they to hear without someone preaching, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? 
Now, for the skeptic that says, well, based on your teaching that God sovereignly regenerates and saves apart from man cooperating with him, why bother preaching if God is sovereign? I mean, really, why go out and spend, why do we spend so much of our hard-earned dollars to invest in missionaries around the world to share the gospel if God sovereignly saves? And the answer is given here. He ordains the means as well as the ends. Here's here's one way I'll put it. He commanded it, so you do it. He doesn't have to give you an explanation, but he did. He he, he ordains the means instead of the end. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's what 1 Corinthians 1.21 says. We preach it because God commands it, and we preach it because God has ordained to use the preaching of the word to bring about the effects of our salvation. Let me put it a different way for you. If, you don't, if you're having a hard time with this, if God does not choose, if God is not sovereign in salvation, if it's, only his, if, if it's not his will, but it's the individual's will that decides, why do you pray? Obviously, God can't change anything. He can't violate your will if you believe that way. What good would prayer do? And see, beloved, if man is sovereign in salvation and God is not, prayer is useless. But as it stands, Scripture is clear. God is sovereign, so pray he saves your friends. Pray that he saves your neighbor. And understand, because God's the one doing the salvation, you look at that person and say they'll never get saved, never say never. We already saw the chief of sinners get saved. That was Paul. And so never say never. And so we know when it comes to being born again, who does it, God? We know how he does it through the Spirit, applying the Word of God. And now, third, why does he do it? Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the Word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's purpose in this monergistic work of regeneration is that we would be a kind of first fruits. And what does that mean? Well, it's Old Testament language. It comes from the sacrificial system. Uh, the first fruits refers to what you would think it would refer to, the, pro- the first products of the field, the first of the harvest. Uh, and the, uh, uh, the Israelites would offer the first of the harvest to God. We read about it in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those places. Now, there are three main principles touching on this that have to do with this. The first fruits were only the best. Exodus says, the best of the first fruits are your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. So the first fruits were the best. Second, they were also uh, uh, an indication of a greater harvest to come, that there was more to come. Now, the first fruits usually, they would look at the first fruits if they were good, they, they, they knew there was going to be a greater harvest. Um, and then third, and most important, the first fruits belong to God. They were given to God. That's how the Israelites viewed it. And all these three are true of those of us who have been born again. I'll close with this. First, we're the best of God's creation. We were created by God. We're the crown of his creation. But we were only, not only brought forth once, but brought forth twice, being born again by his Holy Spirit. And so we're the best of his creation, like the first or second. There, there's more to come. God has ordained to save people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every language. Throughout the centuries, believers of James' time and then prior to that were the first of many more to come and right up to this day. 
and God will continue to save people um, until he returns. And then third, uh, best of God's creation, there's more to come, but most importantly, we belong to God. We belong to God. That is the most fundamental truth regarding the first fruits. We belong to God. A story was told of a young boy who had built himself a toy boat. And he loved this toy boat. And he took it wherever he went. And one day he lost it. And he spent his days looking for it. He, he wanted to seek it out. He couldn't find it. And he wanted to find it. Well, while he was walking down the street one day, he came across this uh, window at a local toy store and noticed a boat that looked strikingly familiar to his boat. And he got closer. He knew it was his. His boat was lost, and now he had found it. Well, having no way of proving it was his, though, he had to pay the store owner. And so he bought it back. And he took it into his little hands, he said, and he hugged it, saying, My little precious boat, you are now twice mine. Once I made you, once I bought you. And God says the same thing to you and to me. You are my prized possession, more precious than any other creature. Once I made you, and once I bought you back with the precious blood of my beloved son. That's who you are in God's sight. Understand that. God brought you forth twice, in creation and in recreation, in regeneration. He bought you back. We belong to him, to the good God that James talks about. We belong to the giving God, to this unchanging God. We belong to this life-giving God, as James says in verse 17. And see, if you live your life that way, with that truth at the forefront of your mind, if you were to wake up every Morning, remember that in Christ you belong to God. And it's not because of anything you have done, and so it's nothing that you can do to separate yourself from that love, but it's because of what He has done in sending His Son for you, in regenerating your heart, in giving you the gift of life. If you can remember this, your life takes on a whole new meaning. Everything else around you can be in shambles, but you can know at this moment, I will always belong to God. It'll take on a whole new perspective. And then the joy of your salvation that James calls you to will overflow in your heart. And what happens is your lust for sin slowly dies as your desire for Christ grows. And so let that motivate you under Uh, trials that you face. Let it motivate you to count it all joy when you face various trials. You belong to the King of Kings. Let's pray. Father, that one truth that we deserve nothing and yet we've received it all because of you and your Son and the Spirit's work in our life. Help us to desire you more and more in Christ's name. Amen.